A quick note before we get started, this episode was recorded over the last two weeks, so some of the information might be a little out of date. Hey everyone, it's Hiba, and this is Kerning Cultures. I hope you're all keeping safe and are healthy. Our season doesn't start for another couple of months, but given the current global situation with COVID-19 and that almost everybody in the world has had their life significantly changed over the past couple of weeks, we wanted to make something to reflect this moment in time and hopefully put something on your feeds that lightens everything for you. So today on Kerning Cultures, we have a special quarantine episode. Some stories of what it's been like staying at home historical lockdowns, and for everybody's sanity, a few things that have nothing to do with corona. I'm Hibba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, stories from the Middle East and the spaces in between. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Like most of this planet, the whole Kerning Cultures team is self-isolating in our homes. And as many of you know, we're a remote team anyway, actually. The 12 of us were in six countries. So as a sonic experiment, we thought it'd be fun to capture that, to record a few minutes of what quarantining sounds like. So here are our diaries of what this time was like. Okay, give me a second, just recording. Um, okay, so... They've altered the call to prayer in Egypt, so instead there's one line that used to say, um, you know, call people to pray in the mosques, and now it says pray at home. Um, so I sent in one recording. Uh, I um, was going for a walk on the beach in, uh, in Jumeirah in Dubai, and I just recorded the sound of the waves um, back when you could walk outside. We've been FaceTiming our grandparents a lot more because they're in self-isolation in Cairo. And so there's a tape of my grandmother telling us a joke. So there's, uh, like at, at my house, there's a balcony and there are always these birds. And so that was like birds full swing, I think, in the late afternoon. And it was just really beautiful. Uh, I sent in some tape of me playing the guitar with my little sister. I was showing her a new song I had learned. It's just really pretty and it's like a very calming song, I think, to play, which is why I really liked it. I recorded uh, a voice note when I was going up. There's a hike around my, uh, around my house, about a five minute drive away. This is the silence of a morning hike in Griffith Park in Los Angeles where you hike up a, a hill, 
a steep hill and it, you, it gets you to this beautiful pine tree called the wisdom tree and people leave like messages under there and so I usually go early in the morning and hike up there um, as a way to help with, with my own anxiety during this time. I sent in, uh, we had like, the, there was this kind of nationwide thing. I think it's happening in a lot of countries where people at 8 p.m. Uh, in the evenings go out and uh, go out onto their balconies or onto their street and uh, give a round of applause for all of the health workers that uh, uh, who are, I guess, literally on the front lines of, of um, fighting this thing. So those are our Corona Diaries. And there are some other things going on in the region that have seeded a kind of creativity that it's only really born out of moments like this, I think. Like this one, happening in Lebanon. Basically, Radio Al-Hai started as a project to uh, entertain myself and my friends as we were in isolation. The entire point is that we can't be together, so we have to use something that's online, right? This is Majid Shahabi, a technologist and urban planning student living in Beirut. And as he and his friends began self-isolating at home, he decided to start making a radio show. He calls it Radio Al-Hai, or the Neighborhood Radio. And within a few hours of having it online, a lot of people just reaching out and uh, wanting to just take it on for a few hours, try to drive it for a bit. A lot of people experimenting. That's the first time that they host a radio show. And it's all live, right? So nothing is pre-recorded. They play music, DJ sets, people come on and recite poetry, they read letters, there's archival stuff. And remember, nobody worked at a radio station before. Because it's synchronous, everyone has to be listening to it at the same time, otherwise you will miss it. Uh, it makes people really excited. And like initially, it, it, initially, and still right now actually, it functions a lot like a walkie-talkie. It's just us and our friends listening, right? So it's a, it's a little bit of a two-way radio station. This is producer Alex Atak calling Majd. So I read that um, I read that it's a corona-free zone. That you not, <laughs> one of the rules is you can't talk about corona. That that was the rule initially, but people have been breaking it uh, quite <laughs> regularly. Uh, oh no! There, there was a segment of songs uh, about being alone at home. <laughs> it was an hour long, and I was like, no, this is a direct violation of the no corona rule. So. <laughs> Uh, but I, I try to encourage people to not focus their segments about Corona because like, if you want to hear about Corona, you just go to real life, right? You can hear Radio El Hay 24-7 at yamakan.play slash Beirut. We'll put a link to it in the show description. A few cities over in Dubai where most of the Kerning Culture's team is based, the city, like many around the world, is on lockdown to contain the coronavirus. 
Those whose jobs permit them to are working from home. There's a curfew at night. And if you leave your house, it's meant for only essential activities like going to the doctor. The government projected in big letters, stay home on the side of the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world. And the whole approach, it's working. For a city of over three million people, the main highway, Sheikh Zayed Road, is basically empty. Malls and shops are closed. There's no one at the beach. And it got us thinking, it hasn't happened in our young lifetimes, but is there a time in history when this happened before? When everyone had to stay at home, when there was a lockdown? The answer is yes, but it's not what you might be thinking around wartime. It happened for something else. Alex Atak called an architect named Todd Reese, who told us about this other instance. Exactly 52 years ago this month, uh, March 21st until April 12th, 1968, the government in Dubai made it mandatory for all residents to stay in their homes every evening uh, from 6 p.m. onwards. So I imagine 6 p.m. being a moment uh, when the, the day is done, when people are at home from their work, that they're perhaps enjoying the last kind of daylight that's left in the day to cook and have dinner before darkness sets in. Because for the first time in the city's history, uh, the government decided that it needed to conduct a census of the population. So that's uh, counting up of all the residents in the city uh, as a way to gather data on the population. Uh, So data like where they're from, uh, what jobs they do, what their literacy level is. But in Dubai in 1968, there wasn't a reliable postage system that could cover every home in the city. So the only way to carry out something like this um, was to hire a bunch of men, uh, hundreds of them, to go out every evening, uh, walking around town, knocking on doors and asking residents the questions in person. They went out, they were equipped with a thick book each time of of questionnaires. Uh, They were equipped with a flashlight. Uh, They were equipped with a a ballpoint pen or multiple ballpoint pens. But they ran into problems from the beginning. Some of the houses were uh, permanent concrete structures like today, but also a lot of them were just temporary structures. Also, uh, a lot of people lived on boats, and obviously uh, boats come and go. So the solution they came up with was uh, just a few weeks before the lockdown, these officials went out and they painted numbers on every door that they could find. And with uh, metal stencils, put a a number on each house. But what was a house? A house is, of course, maybe what comes to your mind first, you know, a place where people live, where they reside. But it also included all these palm frond houses and uh, it included boats, it included the hospital, it included the hotel. And each of these places and things were numbered. So um, what kind of questions would they have asked? Did you, did you, do you have a sense of that from your research? Well, one thing I found really interesting is um, they asked about people's citizenship, uh, where they were from. Uh, they weren't allowed to ask to see documentation Uh, that was specifically uh, forbidden for them to do. And so people were um, given the opportunity to describe themselves as they saw fit. Uh, If they weren't a Dubai national, but felt that, let's say, because they'd lived there all their lives, they could describe themselves as a Dubai national. And I think what, you know, the the census takers, what, what they're kind of struggling with is this idea of who's a resident? What makes one belong to a place? What, what gives one the sense 
that he or she belongs here, that, that, that they are here. And today in Dubai, that, that question has a very simple answer, and that is whether one has a, an Emirates ID card, a residency card, but there were no residence cards at that time. And so I think it's, I think I just wanted to kind of, you know, think about what it means to, to belong to a city or what it means to, to live in Dubai really. And, and how that um, relationship that individuals have with the city, you know, in some ways it is, is not very different today than it is then. It's also kind of changed, you know, what we think, you know, there's often, you know, people answer the question, what is home with, you know, home is where my Wi-Fi is or home is where my books are, but yeah. you know, maybe home is where I want to be quarantined. By the way, in 1968, the census counted Dubai's population at around 59,000 people. Half of them identified themselves as nationals. Today, as most of us are in lockdown or quarantine or whatever you want to call it, uh, there's a ton of stuff for us to do. Many of us can work from home. Uh, and while we're not working, there's Netflix, uh, Skype, House Party, Kindles. There's a million things we could be doing. But talking to Todd, I started to think about what life indoors would have been like back then if you lived in Dubai in 1968. It's a good question. To watch TV, you need access to a television. And I would not imagine that most people living in Dubai at the time had access uh, to, a, to a television. You also had a house in, in the district of Bastakia in Burdabay that screened uh, Hindi films uh, regularly from its rooftop. And so people on other rooftops would be able to watch films you know, over the cityscape, literally over the cityscape. Um, so these these were options. There was radio, but I do get the sense that the, the that the city became quiet in the evenings. Something we've been talking a lot about this week is how this lockdown has helped us feel more connected to our homes and to our local communities. Uh, I moved into my apartment building five months ago, and this is the first time I've spoken to any of my neighbours. We're shopping at like local corner stores uh, instead of supermarkets more, checking up on relatives more often. I think there's something about this time that is um, kind of making us reassess where we live and what our relationship to our homes looks like. And so I think of all the people who are stuck outside of their home country when all this started and how spending this time away from home is making people consider what home actually means a little bit more. We wanted to explore this shift, what this new adjustment has been like for all of us. So we invited you, our dear listeners, to send in voice memos telling us about what it's been like to live in the time of corona. Up next is a audio time capsule of our collective experience. Hi, my name is Reem and I live in Dubai. Uh, over this weekend, the government of Dubai and actually the UAE has um, gone into some form of a national sterilization program where they uh, have asked residents and everybody to remain indoors from 8 p.m. till 6 a.m. Anybody caught on the streets or wandering the streets essentially will be uh, prosecuted unless obviously they have a reason to be uh, to go to the shops or a pharmacy or an emergency. 
first few days were hard to be honest were really hard just to adjust and to adopt everything and all the changes especially work um as i'm a teacher so i had literally to come with completely um new structure to work from home and of course not to mention also dealing with the fact that every one of of my family is in the house as well like i love my family but it, it was a lot so we've sort of designated a room per family member um and that's the way uh, we don't kill each other essentially how would i describe the mood to me it feels quite peaceful like calm in the midst of chaos there's more birds than i've noticed in such a long time in fact they're quite noisy and excitable Amman is in lockdown right now so everyone is at home nobody's driving so no pollution no traffic nor the usual car horns and it doesn't sound like Amman city ambience at all it feels like a countryside soundscapes I guess this sort of life stops when uh the clock's near 5 this is when you start seeing less and less people and then you only see cars and then when it really hits 7 you see no one so i think this is very very unprecedented here in in Cairo Egypt since this is just a city that really never sleeps you see you always see people walking by you always see shops open shops open so this is very strange but yesterday i went for a walk at night because uh, i couldn't stay in the house anymore bliss street is was completely empty last night and it was so scary and so quiet that someone walked up behind me and i was startled and i thought they were going to mug me it was just a jaddo <laughs> walking to get groceries and it was only 8 p.m. but it's it's quite an eerie feeling after the whole virus and the lockdown because i've been on a tourist visa it kind of forced me to get an emirates id under my father because my family live here so it seems like i've permanently moved here because of the virus which has drastically changed my life and my plans i was an exchange program student in st cloud minnesota and i took the decision to come back to bahrain amidst this whole pandemic scene around the world and that is because i felt that i would be more safe uh, back home and due to the fact that i'm coming back from the states i've been uh, commanded to stay for 14 days in self quarantine so i don't even get in contact with my parents with my sisters with my brother i just stay in my room and they bring the food to me uh leave it uh outside of the door and then I just pick it up um I just go to the bathroom and come back that is my route inside my home even when I landed I didn't get to actually hug them or talk to them so the pilot announced that the flight would be postponed for an hour to give us some time to think whether we want to stay in the flight and get quarantined immediately or leave it and go back to Dubai And eventually after I calmed my mind down and became realistic about the situation it made so much sense to me to fly back to Amman get quarantined in my hometown for 14 days rather than going back to Dubai 
So I have been here locked in a room for 11 days and three more days to go. Uh, my name is Sara. I live in Tripoli, Tripoli, Libya, not Tripoli, Lebanon. And for the past two weeks, I've been functioning as normal, uh, going to work eight hours a day, supermarkets and pharmacies have been open, and so have been cafes for a good part of last week. And fighting is still going on, of course. Uh, random shelling and rockets can be heard on a daily basis for most residents. Um, some have had to leave their homes due to the clashes, and others have their necessities packed aside just in case... Now, for a lot of people in Tripoli, the fear of having your home bombed is more terrifying than a virus that you may or may not recover from. Hello, this is Sham from Syria. I live in Damascus. The general mood in my city has been down lately, mostly because of the bad economic situation. So I guess it has become even worse now. I live... Um on Sherzayed Road and the views outside are quite surreal. It's, uh, it's like a scene of from The Walking Dead. Um, quite scary to be honest. I can't wait for everything to go back to normal. When it comes to what I do myself at home, I sit down with my children um, and we play also some games together. Um, we try to teach them some of the things that they have been missing. My, my elder uh, son is actually going to school next year. So he's like in his last year in kindergarten. So we try to teach him as much as we can uh, just to continue his education. We try to, to have like a mix of different activities together. We have some time every day now just looking from the window or the balcony see the sky, to, to, to look at uh, the cats in the streets, the, the trees, uh, the birds, etc. And they are enjoying this very much. Some people are getting pets, some people are getting plants. I've taken up the art of making sourdough. Um, it's been a journey and it's been really hard and not as easy as Google makes it seem. Um, but it's been really nice and there's a whole community that I've discovered in Beirut that can help you making with making sourdough. So uh, I've reached out to a couple people, asked them questions. Um, some of them have been gracious enough to share their tips. I've video called some of them a couple times, so it's been really interesting um, to find this kind of niche that I didn't know existed in Lebanon. I bought a bunch of pastels, I bought a bunch of paints. Uh, for instance, yesterday my mother was boiling beetroots and I saw the water, so I'm drawing with that, like I'm using it as watercolor. Doing a lot of TED Talks, I signed up for online courses, I am reading. It's actually quite great, I'm not complaining at all, I love it. I've always felt like I'm running out of time and now suddenly time has stopped and I've been given a really good chance to invest it. So I'm reading, watching movies, playing piano and I'm also preparing for a German language exam which I've been planning to do soon. So I have a potentially pretty embarrassing thing to admit to you doing as a way of occupying some time during all of this and that's online dating. And I have just as much as a love-hate relationship with those apps that anyone who's tried them does. 
but I have to say the difference I see being on them right now is so telling to me of like as melodramatic as it sounds of human nature like there are all these people out there trying to make contact with someone outside their known universe and they're looking for someone to make possible future plans with and to connect with and to laugh at the absurdity of it all with on some level i think it's so funny like it's potentially the end of days and people are still like to put it delicately looking to be swiped right on but you can also feel like the solidarity because a lot of people are struggling because they they can't feed their families so you can feel like a sense of community neighbors helping each other out like i know my grandmother for example she um she gives away a lot to uh, our neighbors that can't afford to feed their kids at the moment but there's there's still worries that are kind of always in the back of like your mind um we're constantly worried that we're going to give uh, make her grandmother sick Uh, worries and concerns during this period are about the future. Me personally, I'm really worried about jobs. I'm worried about the economy. I guess my biggest worry, if I'm being a bit selfish, is uh, the job market after because I'm going to finish my master's degree this year, and I was hoping to find work, and that might be a bit tricky if the whole economy is collapsing. I was supposed to go to grad school in September. to the US. So I'm really worried that I won't be able to leave and pursue something that I've wanted to pursue for such a long time, which is a master's in public health. And this is the best time to do a master's in public health at all. <laughs> My most recurring concerns during this period is that the virus spreads further, especially in my country, because the healthcare system here is fragile and has been devastated by the war the country witnessed the past nine years. So it may not have the required capacity to respond to it in case of an outbreak and it can turn into a real disaster. I don't know when I'm going to see my brother next and I'm nervous about the situation in cities like London like that they're going to get worse before they get better and and that that is probably what terrifies me most about all of this. I've been trying to block out a recurring worry of mine but it comes up every time i see the statistical models of covid-19 and what the morbidity and mortality looks like and what those numbers look like will my family members be in this number will my friends be in this number my coworkers the people i care about will they be okay Of course the country here is by and large run by migrants and in times of economic downfall or turmoil if we lose our jobs we lose our visas and we will be asked to return to our home countries my parents have lived here for more than the better half of their lives but in times like this we become the pre- precarious class i work for an organization called medical aid for palestinians and we currently we are one of the best respondents for emergencies in Gaza and COVID-19 being one of the harshest emergencies that the health you know um, system has faced it's really a struggle specifically knowing that you can't actually uh, go to the field that much that you have to limit your movements that you have to take so much precautions not to transfer this disease to your other colleagues or to your family it's not easy at all being worried of um... my two little kids now or 
uh, worried of my family and even of, of my old people here in Gaza. Um, I try to, as much as I can, to, to be positive and to keep positive inside the house, uh, just to support my two little kids. My dad is an ENT surgeon and it was only until recently after begging him over and over again that he closes his clinic did he finally do so. He's, he's not young at all so any form of infection that he catches is, is quite, you know, concerning. If there is one thing that I would take from this experience is that nothing really matters. It's not in our hands. No matter who we are, no matter what power do we have? It just comes to the fact that we are not in control. And that's it. Like everyone, I want COVID-19 to go away so I can walk to my office and hear my colleagues. I want to visit my family and friends in Palestine and sit in my grandmother's garden. I want to see my best friend get married in August. It's the little things that we're all thinking about now. But in the moments when I'm in that fear, that's the moment I just come back to my senses, to this exact moment. I'll sit for a moment. What can I see? What can I hear? What can I taste? What can I touch? And I hold them in my heart. Pray and breathe. The next thing we wanted to share with you is a reading. It's by the writer Rabia Redban, who's actually a dear friend of Kernan Culture's editor Dana Balut. Rabia is a cancer survivor and therefore immunocompromised, which is a term many of us have grown to know because of COVID. From his apartment in Washington, D.C., he read this piece that he wrote. It's clear we have entered a new chapter a time in which normalcy is being redefined. However, this is also a time that further cements our nature as one being, a time in which the amount we suffer will be directly related to the amount we choose to love. It is scary how quickly life can be upended, how quickly the fog can dissipate and we can be sprung back into existence, only because the prospect of death is somehow perceived to be closer. In these moments, there's undoubtedly fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of the fading illusion of control, fear for our loved ones, fear of our loneliness and livelihood, fear of ourselves. I am immunocompromised and sitting alone in my house for the foreseeable future. Despite my state of denial, I have a running nose and feel a tightness in my left lung. One I can't tell is of my own making or is actually real. The question of whether I have been infected by corona permeates my thoughts. I think about it with every door I turn, every grocery store I enter, and every deep breath I take. Panic is not inevitable, despite uncertainty. I do have a choice. A choice to jump down the rabbit hole and a choice to stay present. 
I haven't felt this choice so intimately in over 15 years, a time when my cancer had relapsed. Seemingly overnight, my chances of survival went from 90% to less than 50%. A finality seemed within reach. I felt death was a certainty. I felt life was no longer worth living. I was physically here, but during that time, my mind zeroed out and I was numb to my surroundings. This changed one night, however, when I made a routine trip to the bathroom after my second round of treatment. As I prepared to brush my teeth, my eyes incidentally captured their reflection in the mirror in front of me. My face was unrecognizable. I had no hair, no eyebrows, and I looked paler than a ghost. My eyes had deep black circles around them, and I noticed my cheekbones protruding from my face, a feature I never had before, but became possible as a result of losing 50 pounds, which I hadn't realized had happened. This moment stirs within me even today. It taught me life's most important lesson. Standing in my bathroom, looking into my eyes, I decided to accept that my cancer had returned. To accept that I had very limited control as to whether I would be alive or dead in six months' time. And to accept the pain I was feeling due to the collapsed lung and depleted body. It is one of my life's greatest mysteries why I was given the strength during this dire moment of need. But it is a lesson I hope to live by once again during this new episode of Uncertainty. We don't know how long this virus will continue attacking our bodies, or if our governments will act to stop it. We don't know how long we will live with social distancing, or how many people we will lose along the way. But by accepting that, it opens up the opportunity to work on the answers we do have. We know that this time will require patience, selflessness, and sacrifice. It will require community guided by compassion, mercy, and love. And it will require us to act as one, no longer conveniently subscribing to the myth that our politics, our institutions, and our society have pushed for the benefit of a few over a collective and acknowledge the truth that we are all equal and must work together if we are to thrive. Crisis is scary, but crisis can also clarify. In what has been a particularly monotonous, stable existence as of late, I choose to use this time to remind me of what's important. I choose to use this time to make me actively seek to be present. I choose to use this time to be in community. And I choose to use this time to love. Love myself on the days I feel low and love you as we stumble along this road together. I hope you will join me.
And lastly, as promised, a few things that have nothing to do with the current state of the world. It's just good music. This is a cover of Ba'dak Ala Bari by Feruz, sung by Ro'el Aboy. Um, oh man, what do I want to sing? <laughs> <laughs> what's, uh, what's the song that you're, um, <clears throat> that you find, what was one of the last songs that you kind of hummed to yourself? Okay. Yeah? Ba'dak Ala Bari Ya Amar Al Ya sahar ibtishri Ya dahab al-ghali Ba'dak ala bali Ya hilu ya maghroor Ya habau mantur Ala satah al-ali And lastly, we'll leave you with a song by Kerning Culture's sound designer and engineer, Mohamed Khayzat. This episode was produced by Alex A. Tak with editorial support by Tamara Rasamni, Dana Balut, and myself, Hiba Fisher. Fact-checking by Zena Duweder and sound design by Alex A. Tak. Thank you to everyone who sent in their voice notes chronicling what your corona experiences have been like. Some of you wanted to stay anonymous, so those of you by name... Sumaya Abdurrahman, Mohammed Rasil, Farah, Sara, Dereen, Teresa, Mohammed, Majid, Rihanna, Nadine, Najia, Kelly, Rafi, Omnia, Sham, Nasri, Reem, Mahmoud, Tala, and more. Thank you all so much. You'll hear from us again before our June season starts. Over the next few weeks, we'll be dropping some more mini episodes into our feed, so click that subscribe button if you haven't already so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>